Yeah, I've got a couple of questions that I'm, I'm asking myself. One, of, one, of, one is to do with what we think we know about happiness. And what we think we know about happiness nearly always comes from people telling us answers to questions that we ask them about how they're feeling, about their moods and so on. And I was really struck recently by a couple of papers that show that self-report data are often inconsistent with other ways in which we can now start measuring happiness through looking at facial expressions, conversational analysis. Um, for example, in the US, it's, it's always been shown in self-report data that conservatives are happier than liberals. It's almost been taken as a statement of fact. Yet, when you look at people's facial expressions, when you look at the conversations they have, and the tone and the mood of the conversations, it's actually the other way around. So, that's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm interested in trying to find out how happy people are without asking them. And big data and other forms of analysis, looking at people's actions and behaviours and so on, um, give us that opportunity. So that's one sort of question that I'm asking myself. Another question, um, and this is a, well, I wouldn't say bigger question, but it's a, it's, it's a bigger question in my mind because I have no idea how best to answer it at the moment. That other question, I've got a kind of good sense of the research methods that I might use. But this is a question of the role of stories and narratives in people's lives. And I'll, I'll tell a story to frame the stories. So I have a friend who went for dinner and she spent the whole of the evening complaining about her job. Her boss, her colleagues, her commute, everything about her day-to-day -day experiences was miserable. And then she said, at the end of dinner, as we were leaving, I love where I work. And uh, that's pretty interesting, but actually quite common. Um, she was working for an organisation where her parents were proud, her friends were jealous, somewhere she'd always wanted to work. How could she not be happy when she thought about the story of how happy she was working where she was working? But her experiences, day to day, moment to moment, were telling her something quite different. And so I'm really interested in where these narratives come from, particularly those narratives that sometimes get in the way of us being happier. Not the narratives, there's been a lot of psychological research on how stories are really helpful for us. You know, for example, in the case of experiencing adversity or trauma, um, if we look for explanation and reason through narrative, it helps us cope with the adverse consequences. So there's been a lot of work on that. I'm interested more in the, the social constructions of the stories, the things that, our, that evolution or society or our parents or historical accident tell us about the lives that we ought to be leading. And as I say, in particular, how they might sometimes get in the way of us experiencing better lives. So relationships, that's a really, that's, who's not interested in that, right? I mean, we have personal ones, we have often, of course, with our parents and our children, but the intimate relationships are particularly interesting, I think. There are so many stories about relationships and the types of relationships that we ought to be having. Um, you know, marriage, for example, monogamy, massive, massive stories that may have had, may still have their time and their place and may have very good explanation and reason why for some people, some of the time, they're good for them. But the idea of, of romantic love and that romantic love lasts is complete nonsense from the science. We know from the science, that's very clear. Uh, passionate love, you're probably lucky if you get 
12 months out of it, maybe 18 months if you're really lucky. Um, then it turns to companionate love. Um, but a lot of people still expect the passionate love to continue. Um, and they think their marriages or their relationships are failures because they're not feeling like they did when they first met. Um, it's just an absolute mess, actually. We, we kind of get ourselves into the mess by, by telling this story, a one-size-fits-all story, about the kinds of relationships that we ought to be having um, and the kinds of relationships we ought to be having for our lifetimes. Well, one, of the, one of the interesting questions one, one of the interesting questions is where the stories come from, the, the source of the stories. And um, people's perceptions and views about the relevance and resonance of the story will be contingent upon the sources. We often will tell evolutionary reasons, for example. They're, 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 that's just a story in itself because you can never falsify them. Um, they'll come from a whole range of different sources. And, and, and part of my future work is to look at just how important some of these different causes and sources of stories are. But in terms of data, which is, of course, as an academic, that's you know what I do. I'm interested in mostly quantitative data, large data sets from, ideally, many observations of many people over many years um, in the behavioral science space, randomized controlled trials in the real world where we observe the actions of real people in the real world when we randomize them to different treatments and interventions. Um, rather than telling my own stories about, about what the world should look like. Um, you know, here's an interesting story about relationships. Now, there are some, there are some data, of course, most of this is, is not causal because it's not been done under randomized control conditions. But um, couples that um, sleep in separate beds are happier and have longer lasting marriages than couples who sleep in the same bed. Now, I bet as a story, well, I'm convinced as a story of what, how, how we ought to be living in the modern age, um, there's something wrong with marriages and relationships where, where the couple sleep apart. That's not what you're meant to do because of notions of romantic and passionate love that feed into the narratives that we tell about our lives. So what I want to explore further, and this is all new research territory for me to some large degree, is to see where the data, the science, the evidence conflicts with some of the narratives and stories that, that people tell about relationships, about a whole range of other things too. I mean, we have, we have a very um, good story of recognition and status and achievement. Now, there may be good evolutionary reasons for that, why um, successful people are clearly more likely to have a greater range of partners. Um, but that narrative, again, many times will get in the way of people being happier, and that we do see in the data. Again, often correlational, not causal, um, but people in high-status jobs that are sacrificing considerable amounts of time, which is the scarcest resource of all, uh, with people that they would otherwise enjoy being with, their family, their friends, and leisure time, in the quest and the pursuit of achievement and success, are just making themselves miserable to achieve something that has been constructed for them as being uh, something that they should strive or aim for. So this is, these are all examples of, 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 uh, of the, of my, 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 this is clearly not going to be a, a view that I could adopt and hold in every instance for everything. Of course, context matters. But what, I, what I'd like to do is try to push the case that we need to get rid of stories and narratives and live life in experiences um, 
that are essentially about pleasure and purpose as people experience their everyday lives and not about evaluations and constructions about the things that they think they should be doing or the lives that they should be leading. Well, I was a health economist for the best part of a decade of my academic life. I was pretty successful at that, actually. I did a very, I did a, did a very good job of being, uh, of you know, writing papers and, and um, having quite significant policy impact. And the work I did, I asked people to imagine what life would be like to experience different health conditions. It's for the purposes of then informing the use of scarce public resources. And you would be, for example, asked to imagine what it would be like to um, in a health, be in a health state where you were, had some physical functioning problems, maybe had anxiety or depression, whatever. And people were projecting and imagining what it would be like to be in those states. And those numbers and those answers are still being used by regulatory authorities to inform allocation decisions. And it, and it struck me quite quickly, or maybe it took me longer than it should have done, to, to realise that we're um, pretty poor, as a lot of psychologists have, have shown, at being able to predict the impact of changes in life circumstances, health and other things, on our well-being. And um, I particularly picked physical functioning and anxiety and depression, because when you ask people to imagine how bad those conditions are, um, they think they would be about as bad for them if they were to experience them in the, in the future. Well, the evidence from happiness research, as I then started to uh, find out, tells us something quite different. It tells us that living with, over long periods, mental health problems is much, much worse than living with, over long periods, physical functioning problems. And the reason is because of attention. Mental health problems continue to draw attention to themselves in the experience of our lives over time. You don't you don't wake up a year after being depressed less so because it's been a year. But with physical functioning limitations, insofar as there's no other attention seeking attributes associated with it, like pain for example, you get used to it. You know, a year with a limp, a year after you first started limping is not as bad as the first day. So our imaginations are not particularly good at being able to predict that. There's obviously quite a lot of research evidence on that. There's a lot of research evidence on that. And so, and so, what I what it what it led me to led me to argue was that actually we're misallocating resources. We're 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 spending, and, and I think this is still the case, much much more on physical health problems than mental health problems, given the impact that those conditions have on people's lives. Um, and that's one of the great advantages of happiness data. I think is that they enable us to not only find out what things affect people as they experience the conditions of their lives but really significantly to do so without having to ask them how much they think those conditions affect their lives. All of the preference data that we use in economics and health economics is to say to someone, imagine how much this would be a problem for you when you're imagining in how much it's a problem. Um, what the happiness data allow us to do is to find out how happy someone is, find out all sorts of other stuff about their life, including their health state as far as that's what they're interested in, and then allowing the regression models to tell us the impact of those events and circumstances and health state on someone's well-being, and I think that's a huge advance. Um, you know, it's kind of taken us a while to wake up to that. I think in economics, particularly, and also in public policy, but we're finally getting that time. We we have essentially two disciplines or fields of activity, shall we say? We've got happiness research on the one hand, where you've got people doing 
work that essentially looks at survey data using self-reports um, of the kind that I alluded to earlier, you know, how happy are you feeling now or how satisfied are you with your life overall? Um, and then tries to infer cause and effects from sophisticated regression techniques. And then you've got behavioral science, on the other hand almost, that's doing interventions, nudging people to behave differently using financial incentives or social norms or whatever other effects have been shown from the behavioral science literature to get people to behave differently using lab experiments or field experiments, randomized controlled trials in natural settings. Um, so you've got two different research methods being used, one survey research on the one hand, the other randomized controlled trials on the other. On the other. Um, but really significantly, not only that, you've got different research methods being used, you've, you've got no one really thinking, what are the welfare consequences, what are the well-being and happiness consequences of the nudges? They're looking at the the change in behavior, right? So so I send you a letter that says you're a high-end energy user compared to other energy users, and I show that that might have some effect on population, on, on average, on your energy use. But what if you're the kind of person who really hates getting this letter about what a terrible person you are by using more energy than the average person is? And what if you might actually be willing to pay money not to get the letter that tells you what a bad person you are relative to other people. And what if it actually makes you feel worse by being told you're a bad person relative to other people? These are all questions that are not being answered by keeping those two research disciplines or those two research areas distinct. So, so my own research tries to, first of all, what well, both things it tries to do both things use the research methods of behavioral science we, we should be doing much more randomized controlled trials looking at the cause and effects on and of happiness because most of it's correlational you know nonsense about whether nonsense largely nonsense about whether children make people happy or not we don't we, we've got no randomized controlled trials where people get allocated children or not to show a treatment effect there's a huge selection effect problem in there so trying to use not with children is a bad example but with other behaviours and other conditions, use randomised trials to assess the cause and effects on happiness. And of happiness, of course, because there's a whole range of consequences that follow from people being happier or, or otherwise. But most significantly, looking at the happiness consequences of the nudges that we make. Because I'm, I'm really interested in knowing, showing and knowing, knowing and showing, whether... When we make, when we nudge people to be a little bit healthier, or save a bit more for their retirement, or use less energy, that they're actually better off as they experience their lives as a result of doing that. Because it's not obvious that we always are. So yeah, so as a as a health economist, I I thought like an economist for a decade, and then I, I there's always this is a, this is the great thing about stories. We can we can always have a nice narrative that makes our lives cohere and make sense of things but i serendipitously met danny Kahneman. i mean that's that's really what happened um uh i, I went to a, an economics of happiness conference in milan um i won a very small prize in the uk to buy out some teaching and give me some time to go and do other things and i saw this conference economics happiness milan sounds all right um and you know danny was there this was short i think you know, 2003, 2004, not long after you won his Nobel Prize, 2003. And we just sat next to one another on a very short bus ride to a conference dinner or something. And within the five or ten minutes that we were 
sat chatting, he invited me to Princeton. And so I went and uh, that kind of really got me interested in both the behavioural science and psychology and also the happiness research, which he was getting much more into himself at that point. So um, it's really interesting when we think about stories and narratives. One of the things that we, that we don't like as part of the human condition is luck as an explanation. Because luck has no agency. Talent and effort are all things that... If, if you look at a film and we tell a story of a film, we don't tell a story about the randomness of what happened. There's a narrative from the beginning in the middle through to the end. And so the human condition doesn't like luck as an explanation because it, it, it has no agency. So, um, but, I, but I do think in my own case, and in so many other people's cases, luck is just hugely important. And I was just lucky to meet Danny. One of the interesting sure. things, well, one, one of the interesting things for, for the use of happiness measures in policy is that I think we should um, probably not use the term happiness. And you know, Kahneman has made this, made this point too, and uh, a lot of what I think is clearly influenced by him. But misery and suffering are much more salient terms to policymakers. If you say to a policymaker, the purposes of policy should be to maximise happiness, many of them will look at you and think, think you're silly and think it's trivial. If you say the purpose of policy is to minimise misery and suffering, they'd be pretty pathological not to agree with you. Even though sometimes the measures that we might use for those things would be precisely the same. The language that we use as presentation for policy-making matters. And so I try to remind myself although it's against my natural temperament to be um, thinking and using terms like misery and suffering rather than happiness and well-being. Yeah, so a few years ago, we wrote a report for the Cabinet Office called Mindspace, which was a nine-letter mnemonic or checklist for behavioural science interventions that influences largely through unconscious and automatic processes. And, and the, of the nine elements, three come from economics, I think, three come from cognitive psychology and three from social psychology. So I think that the behavioural science that, that I do captures each of those areas of activity. Um, and you would add, one would add in, although I don't do this research myself, neuroscience mm -hmm. um, as another, there have been obviously huge advances in neuroscience over the last uh, decade or two. Um, and so I guess the behavioural science arena covers, covers those areas. It's, it's a good term to use, I think, as well, because um, psych you know, economics is often put off by psychology. Psychologists don't understand economics um, <laughs> as well as some of them think they do. Um, and so it's a nice encompassing term for the interdisciplinary interface of those disciplines. Um, I'm really interested and in, in a way that economists are not to be I mean, they, they take data and they do regression analysis and they, and, and they do fancy stuff, and, but they take the data is given and is available. So most of the data and measures we have of happiness are life satisfaction reports. Overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about whether that, that question, those kinds of questions actually really reflect and capture happiness. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that question for a second, um, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? Um, if you were answering that question, that would take you quite a long while. It's quite cognitively demanding to actually think about and answer that question. But even if you did, then what, is, what does it reflect? It's reflect. It's reflecting, I think, much more the degree to which you feel like your life, you've achieved the things that you wanted to achieve, your preferences have been satisfied. It's actually nothing to do, really, with happiness or mental states in the way that, I, that we would think about it. Also, by the way, it takes people about three seconds at most to answer that question. So they're clearly not answering it. 
they're, they're giving some heuristic or some response to a question that says, I'm probably about a seven or eight out of 10, which is a much mm-hmm. easier question to answer than actually thinking about overall how satisfied you are with your life. So I would be I'm much more interested in, in understanding much more than we do currently, although we do have data sets that are increasingly showing this, how people are feeling as they experience their lives day to day, moment to moment. And, and the important contribution that I, that I think I've made is to think of those experiences, not just in terms of hedonic states of pleasure and pain and misery, anxiety and excitement, but also in terms of purpose. Now, of course, purpose has been talked about since Aristotle and for the last two and a half thousand years, but always as an evaluation, as a story. Does my life have purpose? Does my life have meaning? I'm not interested in the meaning of life. I'm much more interested in the meaning of moments. I'm interested in whether this conversation, what I'm saying now, ha- has purpose in the experience, whether it feels fulfilling, worthwhile, meaningful, as I engage in the activity. And not just as I reflect upon whether it's been worth it either afterwards or in some global sense. So my, 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 my meaning of life, my purpose as a father doesn't show up when I reflect upon being a dad. It's in the experiences that I had with my children. It's in the, the stuff that sometimes is actually quite boring and well, not it's like boring, but, but not particularly pleasurable. I mean, you know, listening to them read the same story again, helping them tie their shoes, helping them tie their shoelaces teaching them times table, so many more things that would be much more fun than that. But they feel like they're fulfilling activities. And so I think my contribution is to say that, that, that life contains these, these elements of both pleasure and purpose in our experiences, and that happy lives are therefore ones that contain the right balance for that individual, so it won't be the same for everybody, between activities that are on the one hand pleasurable and on the other hand purposeful. And that's what I think happiness is. That's, that's my conceptualization of it. Um, and and I think that's a contribution. I think to see to see purpose as an experience is a different way of thinking about happiness. I mean, there are some there are some very interesting intertemporal and interpersonal comparisons of happiness that raise a, a huge number of questions. Dealing with, dealing with the intertemporal ones, that is changes of happiness over time, and even whether happiness was something in the you know past and not that long ago people even thought of as being something that they were motivated by or or cared about in any sense. I do think that it's been, that, that, that feeling good, in whichever sense we, we, we try to capture that and measure that, and we've spent a bit of time talking about that, is, is part of a desire in the human condition. I think that's what we do. We don't, we don't, no one would, no one would knowingly seek out misery. Of course, we make all sorts of mistakes, and especially when you add purpose into the mix, by the way. There's lots of things that we do that might not be particularly pleasurable, but they give our give our experiences value and worth. Mm-hmm. So, so we're driven we're we're driven and motivated across generations and across time to 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 seek out things that we at least think will make us feel better rather than worse. I don't think that's ever ever changed. Mm-hmm. What has changed is the language that we might use to reflect and represent that, mm-hmm. and the avoidance of suffering and misery may have been language that we used much more frequently in the past, and now the the sort of celebration of happiness and flourishing or whatever might be language that we would use now. But the but the basic desire and motivation for action hasn't changed, I don't think. The international and interpersonal comparisons issue is a really interesting one. It's, it's part of the reason actually why I'm not particularly interested in international comparisons and happiness data. Mm-hmm. I don't think they actually really tell us very much. You can't translate the word into some languages. 
has very different meaning when if you can translate it and 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 the whole range of cultural effects in the self-reporting of the data that that lead me to conclude actually that people are really making quite a big deal of something that is quite problematic i think um and again it, it actually draws me much more to to measuring more directly people's experiences of pleasure and purpose i think they might be more universal in some sense you know when i when you when you get kicked in the leg and you feel pain and you report how much it hurts, that's, that's probably more interpersonally comparable and culturally comparable than asking people how satisfied they are with their life these days, which which, uh, which, which has all sorts of problems, even if you can translate it. Oh. Two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse have not managed to resolve the question about what it is that we're substantively driving and striving for as individuals or as populations. We're not going to do it during the course of this interview. But what we do need to be clear about so is the normative... Is the norm- well, we need to be clear about the normative view that we adopt when we're approaching individual decision-making, and particularly public policy-making. And we need to be clear from data, like did in randomised trials or big surveys, uh, where the differences between our accounts of well-being will lead to different policy conclusions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we need to flush out, just, just whether these normative and philosophical discussions that have been going on for two and a half thousand years actually matter and the conditions and circumstances under which they do matter. And so, for example, it does matter which measures we use when we talk about mental and physical health. We talked about that earlier. It's really significant and important that we, ha- that we have some clarity about what we're striving for when we're intervening into people's lives to help improve them, um, about what, what improvement looks like. And if you push me into, into a corner, then that's actually have to nudge me very hard, the corner that I... Uh, that I will be in is the one that says we assess the impact of all policy interventions on the experiences of pleasure and purpose and pain and pointlessness that people have as they go about their daily lives. That's the the normative position that I adopt when approaching individual individual choices, uh, choices that I make for my children um, and when I'm informing policymakers about what they should do with scarce public money. That's, That's the frame of reference that I have. Mm-hmm. The self-report question in happiness research is a huge issue. At the moment, it's the best way and the only way, really, that we've got, not, not the only way, but the way that's been most widely used, anyway, to understand how someone feels. And it kind of makes a lot of sense. You know, if I want to find out how you're feeling, why I'm, I'm not best placed to judge it. I can ask you how anxious you're feeling, how worried you are, how stressed you are, how excited and how joyful you are. And you're probably a good judge of it most of the time. What I think is more challenging, again, is asking people these reflective narrative questions, evaluative questions. Overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? I don't go around routinely experiencing that, but I do experience the joy and the pleasure and the purpose and the pointlessness and the futility of the experiences that I have in my life. So self-reports are a good way to tap into them. Um, but they're not the only way, and and we should be making more. I think academics are often quite slow in on the uptake of, of new technologies and new methods and big data and whatever, and we should be we should be using those data much more than we are. Um, conversation, I, I, I think actually there's much more that can be done on, not my research area, but on conversational analysis, looking at, at tone and intent, you know, and how people, the, the tone with which people are speaking to one another, the moods that people exhibit when they're engaged in conversation. You can do that without any self-report. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's one of the ways in which we're going to improve our measures of happiness and well-being. The replication issue um, in psychology is a massive, it's probably the single biggest issue right now, I think, isn't it? 
um, how many of these studies are replicable. Um, and one of the things that, of course, we know from the behavioral science and, and um, neuroscience has helped taught us this, has, has helped us with this over the last decade or two, um, is the role of the unconscious and the automatic system in shaping and influencing behavior. And our understanding now that context matters so much and that you only have to change something trivial almost in the environment, in the situational context within which someone acts, for it to have a significant effect on their behavior. And so it's little wonder, really, that actually some of these studies are hard to replicate because you can't precisely replicate the environment and the context and situations within which those initial behaviors were first observed. And so that opens up the whole, you know, of course, the issue around priming. You know, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that we're primed all of the time. Our situations in, um, cue us to behave in particular ways. Does that mean that we, we have a good understanding of precisely what those primes are, when they operate, how long they last for? No, it doesn't. It means that we need more research and to actually sometimes perhaps um, accept that we're not going to replicate because of those situational factors that influence us so heavily. So there is no, there is no doubt that we're being primed and influenced and cued by our environments all the time in unconscious and automatic ways. The brain is looking to make life easy for us. And it's making associations all of the time to help us do that. And mo most of the time, it does a pretty good job of it, actually. Of course, the academic and policy interests sometimes are in where we make the mistakes and the errors. But the subtleties of priming are so interesting, it makes the academic research so bloody difficult. It's because when you over, if you overprime someone, then, of course, it's in their conscious awareness and then ceases to be a prime. But where does, the prime, where does that cusp come? Where, where is that tipping point between something being in your unconscious environment and something being in your conscious awareness mm -hmm. that's so little wonder again that the replication studies are so difficult because sometimes they'll be in the unconscious environment other times they'll be in the conscious awareness and 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 it's very difficult from the experimental methods to actually really discern and understand those differences uh but um, there's no my my sense in policy making not just in the public sector but in the private sector too is our almost that inability to get over ourselves. I mean, we actually really need to accept the fact that we are driven so heavily by unconscious and automatic processes. Embrace that and celebrate that. Um, I think people like Kahneman are, are a bit more pessimistic about our abilities to um, deal with those biases and effects in ways that are welfare enhancing. I'm optimistic that we can. I think if we can, if we understand the mechanisms that underpin our behavioural responses to particular situational stimuli, then we can design environments. We can we can organise society in ways that just make it easier for people to do things that enhance welfare, and harder to do things that don't. I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic that our inability to make rational, thoughtful, considered decisions. Uh, is actually, you know, is, is, is harmful. I think it's actually good. And actually, I think this is a real arrogance of economics, I think, or just maybe people generally, to think that a little bit of training and a bit of knowledge and understanding can somehow de-bias you from, from these effects that may have served us, may have served evolutionary advantage for billions of years. And you can suddenly have a degree in economics and suddenly you're de-wired and de-biased from, from these effects. You know in families how... Um, siblings will really fight one another, almost hate each other. And then if someone else from outside the family starts having a go, the siblings will gang up and 
you know, fight the person outside the family. And sometimes I feel a bit like that about economics. I kind of quite like, you know, having a go with my siblings in economics. Mm -hmm. But then you get people from outside have a go. Mm -hmm. And I kind of sort of stand up for economics a bit. And and I think, of course, and, and again, actually, with most things in life, in individuals as well as in societies, some of our biggest strengths are also our biggest weaknesses. Mm -hmm. One of the great strengths of economics is it tries to predict. It's not a descriptive science in the sense of psychology. It is prescriptive about how the world ought to be and what the world would look like if certain levers, normally financial ones, are called. And that prediction makes it incredibly useful and valuable for policymaking. Trouble is, of course, it often gets it wrong. <laughs> so its great advantage is also its great weakness. When you make mistakes in prediction, um, then of course you can cause problems. But the fact that we are willing, we as I'm now back in the family, are willing to make those prescriptive, predictive claims is something that, that that's that's why I think economics has the ear of policy making um, much more than psychology does. Well, my my earlier work as a health economist has had has had huge impact on health policy. Sorry, I think most of that work was, wasn't wasn't particularly good now through the lens of happiness. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to sort of recast how we evaluate policy impact mm -hmm. using happiness as the lens. One thing that I have learned, and of course, is, you, know, you know, academics do this all the time. They say, they sort of bleat on about how policymakers don't listen to us. They don't pay any attention to any evidence. Well, academics don't present evidence in a way that really makes people listen. It's not particularly compelling. The case is like loads of regression models and graphs and stuff. Who cares? Tell a story, have a good narrative that sits alongside the good data, and people pay more attention. So it's incumbent on policymakers to listen to evidence more, but it's also incumbent on academics to present evidence in ways that make policymakers listen. One of, the, one of the one of the interesting kind of it's not a contradiction. I think it's a consistency. Is that is that we need to tell less stories to ourselves mm -hmm. um, and to each other about all sorts of things, including the sorts of lives that we should lead. But in order to get scientific evidence listened to and taken seriously by policymakers, we need to tell stories. We need to have good narratives that back up the evidence and the science. Because actually, as, as we all know, all, all policy actually is really about narrative. Um, we need austerity. Austerity doesn't, I mean, what does that, that doesn't actually mean, that doesn't actually mean anything. It's just a huge story and narrative that underpins austerity. Everything in policymaking is actually about the narrative. So academics need to understand that a little bit better than they do currently in order to have an impact on public policymaking. Understand the narrative, understand the story, and be able to talk in a way that makes policymakers listen more than they do currently. Yeah, when I mean, so from health to happiness to stories. Um, personally, though, I've, I've had... Um, uh, opportunity to do more public-facing activity, um, not just talks, but television and things like that. And so I, I'm kind of quite liking that. I'm quite, I'm quite liking the opportunity to take science to the public. And I think that the public appetite for social science, for any science, for, you know, for good science presented well, I think is quite strong. I think people... There's an assumption that people don't really care and don't really want evidence or science or knowledge, but I think I, I think that I think that underestimates people. I think um, one of the things that you know, my working class background is one that wasn't 
there, there was there were no there was little formal education. But none of my family had formal education beyond the point at which they had to stay at school. But they were kind of interested in stuff. Um, and finding people that could present interesting stuff to them in a language and in a way that would appeal to them, I think is something that I'm now realising is, is you know, maybe where a sort of later part of my, it's not even my academic life, but my life, my public-facing life might, might go. Um, and I've learned to do that better. I've, I've filmed TV that, that kind of is for the masses, as it were. And that's taught me that even though I thought I was a, you know, like a pretty street academic, I spoke in a, in a, in a lay language compared to how most other academics speak, I still spoke like a, I still spoke like an academic. And so I've kind of managed to, I think, find ways of communicating more effectively with lay audiences in just the same way as academics need to learn to effectively communicate with policymakers. We really need to understand much more about the people that we're talking to um, than we do currently, I think. So maybe that's the sort of the main message is understand. It's a really obvious thing to say, isn't it? It sounds like a really, most of the obvious, most of the interesting things probably are obvious, but understand the audience that you're communicating to and do it in a language that is accessible to them. 